This is one of the Center's new series, Lore Civil Society Perspectives on the Emerging Digital World. Each discussion will be a call to action for civil society organizations to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. My name is Barbara Iverson. I teach interpersonal skills and intercultural management at Code University of Applied Sciences here in Berlin. And I will be your moderator for tonight's discussion. So today we are taking a look at the issue of digital vaccination certificates for safe travel. You might be wondering about the name The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and that refers to a Disney animated film from early in the 20th century that illustrates the chaos and mayhem that occurs when a good idea gets out of hand when it can't be controlled. This isn't necessarily the assumption of what lies ahead for the world with these certificates, but this is exactly what we're here to talk about today. So now I'm pleased to introduce our four panelists. They all approach this topic with quite different perspectives. So we're really looking forward to what they're gonna share with us today. We're gonna take a moment now to hear from each of them. So Dakota Gruner is coming to us from San Francisco. Thank you, Barb and Carl and the entire team at the ICS Center. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I'm Dakota Gruner. I'm the executive director of ID2020 and in recent months have been leading the Good Health Pass Collaborative. Very briefly, ID2020 is a global public-private partnership focused on digital identity, specifically on digital ID that is user-managed, privacy-protecting, and portable. We bring together governments, the private sector, and civil society to set standards and to build trust with the aim of maximizing the potential and mitigating the risks of digital ID. You can imagine that that is exactly the ethos with which we have engaged in this conversation around what we think of as sort of health passes. I think that given where we're at today, really the emphasis of the discussion should be on how health passes should be implemented to mitigate known risks and maximize the potential benefits rather than you know, a debate about whether they should exist. The reality is you know, that health passes are already in use. EU digital COVID passes went into effect today for European residents, and they're already in wide use in Israel, New York State, a whole host of different places. And so I don't think it's super productive for us to debate whether they should exist. Hand-wringing won't really reverse what's already happening, but I think there is an incredibly important debate to be had about how we do prevent something that there is optimism around from getting out of hand. And there are lots of very reasonable criticisms of the concept that should make us skeptical and should make us cautious. And that's why, you know, I think I frame everything around what safeguards need to be put in place in order to ensure that these programs protect civil liberties rather than exposing individuals to greater harm. GHPC, which I mentioned, the Good Health Pass Collaborative earlier, brings together over 125 companies and organizations, including civil society, to set principles and standards for health passes that we think are good. Health passes that are privacy protecting, put individuals in control over their own data and are widely recognized and trusted. And, you know, broadly speaking, I think there are two buckets of concerns. There are technical concerns relating to privacy and security of sensitive data, and there are non-technical concerns relating to inclusion, equity, and the range of acceptable use cases. And without wanting to sound flippant, the technical questions are easier. You know, I'm not trying to dismiss them, but there's been tremendous work done within the Good Health Pass Collaborative and by others to outline a technical approach that we believe would ensure individual data remains where it should, in the hands of the individual. You know, that gives individuals control over their own data. It puts them in the center of the data exchange. And just as with a paper-based certificate used for proof of vaccination already, that would allow individuals to be issued a verifiable credential and have the ability to elect whether to take it out of their wallet, whether that's a digital wallet or actually a physical wallet, and to share it or not. And that would mean that that data couldn't be shared directly from one institution to another. We've also done significant work on this idea of selective disclosure, which we believe improves upon the privacy offered by the current yellow card. Right now, when you're asked to present your vaccination card, you have no choice but to share the whole thing, including data that might be extraneous or sensitive. And it's written in plain text, so it's easily read if it's lost or if it's stolen. But with selective disclosure built into the design of health passes, individuals could choose to share just one piece of information or simply share that they've met the entry criteria set by a country, an airline, or a venue. On a technical basis, there is a lot that has been done and can be done in order to ensure that there are privacy protections built into technology. The non-technical questions are much harder, and these are questions around inclusivity and around policy. I think, you know, just two very quick points on each of those. 
first, you know, from an equity and inclusion perspective, we think it's absolutely vital that health passes and work for both proof of vaccination and proof of testing or proof of recovery. If it is focused on just proof of vaccination, there are exclusions that, that you know, inherent in that that are, you know, indeed really problematic. And so work needs to be done in parallel in order to say, how do we expand access to testing, expand access to vaccination? But, you know, I do think this is a critically important piece of allaying some of the concerns about equity. The other thing is work on paper-based credentials. And I realize it sounds funny to talk about paper-based digital credentials, but we've done significant work on how to build those additional privacy protections that I described into paper-based credentials so that they would be better than the current yellow card. With that, you know, this is not to say that these concerns aren't real, but just that as we move forward, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in saying, how do we prevent this from becoming you know, the sorcerer's apprentice? I'll stop there and looking forward to the discussion. Thank you so much, Dakota. Wonderful. Okay. Next, we have Baba Aya, who is coming to us from near Geneva. Thank you very much, Bob, and uh, everybody here. My name is Baba Aye. I'm the policy officer responsible for the health and social services sector with Public Services International, PSI. PSI is a global trade union federation that brings together 30 million workers in 155 countries cutting across all regions of the world. We represent these workers on United Nations and other multilateral platforms, including the World Health Organization, OECD, the ILO, and so on and so forth. Now, to the issue of discourse, first, let me say I must congratulate the center for the brilliant uh, reference to the sorcerers, to Walt Disney's uh, take on, on the sorcerers' apprentice. Because the idea of, and now practice starting with today with the EUDDC of the COVID-19 digital certificate is not in itself a bad one. And let me point out that critiquing what is, is not hand-wringing. We might as well say climate change is there. Why are we hand-wringing? No. Critique is the basis for challenging and fighting for a better world, both in general and with regards to specific issues, like in this case on the certificate. Now, to put this in perspective, when the World Health Organization set up its smart vaccination card working group last year, it situated the idea of a digital certificate within a broader context of the development and delivery of vaccines with an aim of universal access the issue is not just that, okay, is it good or is it bad to have digital? It is that where does it stay in this rubric? In, in a situation where in Europe you have between 30% and 50% of populations fully vaccinated, 47% they are about in the US, then you have in Africa barely 1%. There's a thing where I come from in Nigeria that when you see someone with knock need who is a hawker and the way he or she is carrying is planted and you are asking that uh, why are your ways planted he or she tells you that you should look you should go look at the, the the foundation this is not just about technical issues this is not just about the impact on traveling this even has very serious consequences for global health why it's that as the who has pointed out time and again you have had mutations of the virus and this has resulted in quite a number of variants of concern. Currently, you have the Delta variant being probably the most virulent and the most transmissible. A false sense of security is going to fall on. It's a digital version of Fortress Europe, which you have had with migration, but which has not solved the problems of migration. So you are going to most likely have a part of the world or some parts of the world, the global south, be left behind. Because what you have is with the discourse and focus of practice now being more on certification, the Western world is kind of moving ahead, in a sense, from the issue of access. But we need to address this. The digital certificate should rest on universal access. And universal access requires a number of steps being taken. Like for example, the waiver of the trips of intellectual property related, intellectual property rights 
related trade rules, then you can effectively talk of the use because it's not a bad idea in itself. The World Health Organization is even talking of having digitalization of even the yellow card that Kota spoke to earlier. Then a second thing for now, which I also point out is that the World Health Organization, when the idea of the smart vaccination card came up, it went also with the possibility of you know, a global health trust framework. Right now, because the process is member state driven and there are a number of cost trading within this. Right now, it is being determined by different countries and regions, particularly those in the global north. And these has very important consequences on global health, on politics, on civil liberties and rights, and so on and so forth. For now, I will stop at this point in time. Thank you, Bab. Thank you, Baba. And now we shift over to Asa Kapoor, who is in Bangalore, coming to us. So Asa, would you take about five minutes and share also with us who you are and your perspective on this? Hi, hi everyone. Thanks so much for having me here. This is really wonderful and super timely discussion. As Dakota said, things have started moving today. So it's good that we're talking about it now. I am Asta. I'm the co-founder of Apti Institute. We're a tech and society research firm. We do a lot of work on thinking about both access to technology and also how do we negotiate with technology, both online and offline. And we've been doing a lot of critical thinking about questions of data, governance and data stewardship and how people can control their data better and use it to draw value for themselves. On the issue of vaccine passports, I think Baba said there is, of course, the quote-unquote vaccine apartheid, which has implications on who gets access to vaccines and what that necessarily means for people who will be able to access the passport. And there are multiple vulnerabilities around both access to vaccines, ability to navigate the digital infrastructure, and also to think through questions of privacy and security, which also Dakota brought up. I guess we should locate this conversation in the broader context of, you know, why this is happening and, and the way in which vaccine passports in general have become the answer and the fact that we didn't even necessarily pursue other solutions of paper-based vaccine certifications that could have been made better and you know things that we've been using earlier there is a huge amount of interest in digital identity and digitization of paperwork again in the context of india we've seen that even things like vaccine access so to enroll for a vaccine in india you need to navigate a very complex app so you know there's an app for everything and and i think that there's this huge realization that technology will add efficiency and transparency and the ability to control data but that's not necessarily the case we've seen that it increases bureaucratic processes it increases the ability of people or disability of people to navigate some of these systems we've also seen that vaccines and even though the you know a lot of the organizers and implementers of vaccine passports are saying that this is a short-term measure that it's going to be rolled back but obviously again from our experience in india we know that that's not necessarily going to be the case and i say this because we experienced the unique identity system Aadhaar, which was supposed to be just a proof of residence, now is of course increasingly become connected to social security, you know, even for vaccines, driver's license, everything, you need this digital identity. So it's become a tool of oppression, of exclusion. And that's also my concern with regard to vaccine passports, which are likely to be linked to very many things. We are also seeing the need for, I live in a large apartment complex, we've had requests for our vaccination status to be linked to different apps, etc. And, and obviously, once the vaccine passports get implemented more globally, that's going to become the currency. And, you know, I read this interesting concept of will serve as digital bouncers. So will serve to provide or stop entry and access to services even beyond travel, because it's very hard to rein in the scope of this of the digital vaccine passport once you know the sort of bullet leaves the gun and also to that extent i think that there is merit in 
of course, what the quota was saying is to make it better. But I also think that there's merit in rethinking. We don't do enough experiment and rethinking and rolling back of a lot of strategies and policy. And I think that's also where civil society organizations, uh, you know, like some of the ones in the room today, can play a much bigger role. I think that there is value in, in demonstrating what the potential impact is. There's value in evaluating what the impact already is. Right now, we're still very much in the speculation stage where we're learning from experience from the past to see how this has happened. And of course, there is some small evidence from when vaccine passports were implemented for the SARS virus almost more than 10 years ago. But we do need to provide more research, more data, and also prolong this process. It's very, very problematic where solutions get sort of pulled up and implemented at scale without adequate testing and without adequate evidence from how it impacts people in very many ways. There needs to be security audits, there needs to be inclusion and exclusion audits, there needs to be more sort of value-driven questions around vaccine passports, which we haven't had the time to reflect because there's been a sense of urgency from all sorts of economic interests, whether it's the travel industry, or, you know, airlines, governments looking for tourists. There's been a huge amount of urgency that has been imposed on all of us to get the passport or you move on. So I think that we as civil society members and people who are looking at questions of data rights in particular have a responsibility to research this further and also then you know decide how we use that data and I think that there is something to be said about what are the limitations when will this stop if this is a finite response then it needs to have a clear date even the WHO has shown some amount of hesitance on vaccine passports I think we need to challenge that further and see that what are the alternatives it cannot be the only gating criteria I should be allowed a multitude of tools if I want a paper-based passport or vaccine uh, certificate, then I should be allowed to use that. There should be alternatives to this system. It can't be a monolith. And we need to figure out uh, what those are and make sure that we suggest them before we are in a position where digital vaccine passports are way beyond their scope and become something we can't roll back from. So I'll pause there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, and our fourth panelist, we normally have three, but we're really happy that we have four different perspectives this time. So Rémi Tell is near Paris, so he is going to introduce himself and share a little bit about his perspective. Thank you, everybody. I'm really happy to join this uh, worldwide conversation. I'm the founder of a group that is called Peuple Libre, uh, in English, Free People that was created in France three months ago to protect civil rights in the context of COVID. Uh, in France, we had the quarantine for a very long period. All businesses were stopped. You couldn't worship normally. You couldn't study normally. So that was made in that context. And the problem of the vaccine passport came very soon in our fight. But we were divided for the vaccine passport at the international level, because if at the national level, we think that this tool is discriminatory because you differentiate rights of people in their own country, depending on their health status, states have the legitimacy to decide who they want to welcome or not on their soil. Uh, and even to go to some part of France, in French Guiana, for example, today you must present some vaccine certification. But the problem is the problem of proportionality. Because when you want to go to some other places in the world, like French Guiana, uh, you have to get the vaccination against yellow fever. But the death rate of yellow fever is 50%. Whereas all the studies show that the average death rate of COVID-19 is around 2-2%. So we believe that the, this passport is not proportionate to the problems it is supposed to, to solve. Plus, as it has been mentioned already, it does not take into account the different strategies that were put in place all around the world. In South America or in Africa, many countries focused on treatments rather than on vaccines. And as Baba just mentioned, you have around 
percent of Europeans that are now fully vaccinated are usually the kind of discrimination that such a tool can entail. So there is this question of universal access. That's true also in European countries, for example, because uh, we see that the vaccination campaign is touching some limits with around 40% of the, of the population. And the test to, to check if you have the virus or not will soon be uh, not reimbursed anymore. And in France, such a test costs around 70 euros. So you see that depending on your social status, if you're poor or if you're rich, you will be obliged or not to get the vaccination to, to be able to, to travel. That will be a trouble. What about the variants? We've touched a lot about the vaccines and now we are speaking about the Delta variants. If you look at UK citizens, now they are restricted in their movements throughout the European Union, while most of them are vaccinated because it is supposed that the vaccine is not fully effective against the new variants. So I think this is a kind of a dead hand problem to, to have such a tool. And I do not even mention all the economical impact of such measure. I was speaking yesterday with representatives of the airport industry that are very worried about the impact on, you know, on tourism and people do, do not want it to, to travel anymore due to the restriction and the complexity of the, of the process. So I think we have to consider the broader perspective, see that COVID-19 is a problem for humanity, but COVID-19 is not the yellow fever. And we have to put in place some proportionate measures. And last but not least, I really relate with what Asta just said about the possible escalation, uh, you know, of the of the process. I'm afraid that such a passport would just be the first step toward complete control of citizens through digital mechanism. So that's what I wa I wanted to say, and I'm glad that we can exchange our views. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. But right now, what we're going to do is take a few moments for the panelists who've been listening to each other and they've heard from each other before as well to take some time to pose questions to each other, considering that several are coming from quite different points of view. There's quite a bit of overlap, but there's also differences. So Dakota, I'd love to come back to you first and give you the chance, you're welcome to say if this is a question for everyone or if it's a question for one person or two in particular, and you'll all have this opportunity, I'll come around to each of you. But Dakota, let's start with you. Do you have a question for one or more of the other panelists? A question for Asta. You know, I think you raised many concerns about Adhar that actually I share and that ID2020 shares. And I'm I'm curious if you could kind of bring greater specificity to some of the sort of the key issues that you think it raises and the sort of lessons that we should be drawing from that here. Your point around you know, the risk of exclusion of a monolithic system is something that I really appreciate and understand, right? If there's only one way to be able to prove who you are and there is a you know, essentially a limitation on and a single organization able to dictate that that's accessible, then it's quite easy for that to prove exclusionary. What I wonder about is in a world where there's actually maybe a multiplicity of different forms of digital identity, digital credentials, um, including potentially a health pass, is that actually a way we can shift away from having a single monolithic system that the risks of exclusion that it could pose? Yeah, I mean, you know Aadhaar very well, so you know all the all the concerns around it. But exclusion, like I said, happens in multiple ways. So, of course, either you don't have Aadhaar and then you do have Aadhaar, but you're not able to authenticate because your information is incorrect or, you know, the authentication infrastructure, which is, you know, the digital infrastructure is not very robust. There's exclusion at that end. Then there's obviously concerns around data security. And if you're able to keep that data safe, it's a centralized database. We are concerned about leaks, which have happened as well. So that's the other bit of it. The third is, you know, linking of Aadhaar to multiple services, making it the central ID for, like I said, whether you need a driver's license or a passport or even to register your marriage, it's all linked to your Aadhaar. I actually don't have one and rely on the 
you know, at the behest of my partner, both at Aapti as well as my husband, to use their Aadhaar for things that I need as a collective and for filing taxes, etc. So it's just become this behemoth that one can't necessarily work around unless you are super privileged and are able to navigate this digital system. And those are my concerns also with regard to the health pass. And yeah, I think having choice in terms of whether you want certain kinds of digital identity and there should be a broader acceptance of even non-digital identities like the passport, for instance, which has a biometric information in the form of a photograph and other data encoded in it. And I think that that could be something that might work better as opposed to a digital identity that then can, like I said, have a huge amount of scope creep. And I've, you know, just also since I have the floor to Dakota as well, just to understand, like you said, we need to minimize a lot of the concerns that are coming up with regard to the health pass and digital identity. And I was just wondering, what are some of the best practices that you come across as well? In terms of best practices for protecting digital identities, digital credentials, I mean, the first is a, and you touched upon this in your sort of reflections about Aadhaar, is a decentralized architecture. We think that it's important for data to remain first for individuals to be the sole person who can aggregate their own data. And with that, for the data to remain relatively at source. So let's say, you know, you go to a healthcare provider, you are vaccinated that particular provider may keep a copy locally of the fact that they vaccinated you. And and indeed, in many countries, of course, they're required to report that to some national reporting mechanism. But then they issue you a certificate. And again, I, I sort of glossed over this a bit in my comments, but the work that we've done on in the Good Health Pass Collaborative has focused on how we can do digital representations of a good health pass, but also how we can do paper representations of a good health pass. And so you know, the intent with that is to provide optionality, flexibility, and to ensure that it's inclusive. So, you know, somebody with without a smartphone in a low connectivity, you know, setting, or, you know, with you know, who simply just wants to be able to pull something out of their wallet because they prefer that as a format has the ability to do so. On the decentralized architecture, you know, what that means is that you don't see the aggregation of data into a big behemoth, scary database to the extent possible. And with that, the risks, you know, the privacy and security risks are significantly reduced. You know, I think, Baba, you touched upon the digital trust architecture, you know, and the sort of the question of a trust framework that WHO was wrestling with. This is, to me, I think, as important as the technology itself, right? How do you ensure that there is a trust and governance framework that specifies the roles and responsibilities of all of the organizations participating in that digital trust ecosystem. And among friends here, you know, I think one of the things that's been quite difficult and what we've seen in the, the sort of work on health passes broadly is that this question of a tr- sort of a trust framework has been punted to some extent. WHO in recent weeks has announced that they are not going to do anything relating to, you know, sort of a trust framework. They're focusing on the minimum data set which means that you know, we don't quite know how a pass issued in you know, Europe is going to be recognized when somebody tries to travel to, to Nigeria. At the moment, we don't have a mechanism for trust across borders. The you know, ICAO and, and others are proposing using the, the passport public key infrastructure, the PKD that's been used for passports. And frankly, one of the challenges we see with that is that at the moment, only in member states have the ability to verify that a passport is indeed a government-issued passport. Here, there's a range of potential issuers and a range of potential verifiers. You know, if you think about the importance of this being inclusive of both testing and vaccination, certainly in the, here in the U.S., you know, the testing landscape is incredibly decentralized. We don't want to encourage the aggregation of testing data with the, you know, the only issuer being the U.S. government. And the U.S. government has said that that's not something that they're willing to do. And so we have this sort of disconnect between a very hierarchical, only state-led model of kind of a public key infrastructure and you know, the necessity, I think, of having a much more decentralized approach when it comes to you know, how these could be issued or verified. One final comment on this. I think the, the key piece that I think a lot of people need to wrestle with, and you know, we've asked policymakers to engage with this topic, and I, I have yet to see the level of engagement that I think we all would like is on the range of permissible use cases. And this is really, I think, Asa, to your point around how do you ensure that this doesn't become requisite to enter the grocery store or to get into your own apartment building? Policymakers, I think, have a responsibility to say, 
perhaps this is okay for the purposes of traveling across international borders, for getting on a plane, but we are not going to you know, allow it to be requested at, at a grocery store, at an apartment building. Absent those limitations, you know, it's going to be very easy for different types of organizations to say, well, you know, I kind of like to be able to provide some confidence to people coming into my business or my apartment building or whatever, not that they have been tested or they've been vaccinated. And hence, we will ask for it if it's there. Thanks, Dakota. Let's go back to Baba and ask if you have a question for another of the panelists or for all three of the other panelists. Well, my, my take um, would be the question of how do we safeguard keeping the personal information which this data the, this data carry public and and it's in a twofold manner i'm happy dakota spoke to the global health trust framework and it's not just that the who says it won't be taking this up now because it was actually implicit in the idea of the formulation of a smart vaccination certificate in the first place. But considering when you also look at the broader picture of how we COVAX, the wealthier countries have not been cooperative enough in the spirit of the World Health Assembly, the 73rd World Health Assembly last year for vaccines that are universally accessible, a universal access and timeliness. It wouldn't be out of order to think that there is some power play at work that resulted in the idea of the global health trust framework being set aside. So now you have two things. You have the power dynamics of wealthier countries, and you have corporations, private corporations, being central to developing this certificate. It's like the kind of alliance, so to speak, that we had with vaccine development itself, where the governments of wealthier countries stood behind the Pfizer's of this world, the Moderna's of this world, et cetera, et cetera, as against putting health before wealth. So it's now not just data in general, which itself is very important, but also in the global south, where the countries are outside this government corporations alliance. So how do we stop this being fed into not just surveillance capitalism, but allowing for corporations to mine people's data for commercial purposes? You know, irrespective of later, we have seen NHS data just last year, Google, Apple, they've all been, how do we ensure this? Because it's not just about now. What, what is happening with the digital COVID-19 certificate, especially as the WHO DD has pointed out that we are probably entering a period of pandemic, is that we might be entering a new normal. How do we safeguard public human rights of people to their data and ensuring that these are kept public as part of public health system? That's a big question. <laughs> and it's a very good one. Do you have someone specifically you'd like to direct it toward or whomever would like to try to um, tackle that one? I think everyone should speak to this. I think it's an important issue. I throw it open to all these. Okay. Well then, Remy, let's go to you first and then we'll come back to the others too. Thank you, Baba. Thank you, Bella, because the question that I asked were also uh, kind of related to, to the question I wanted to, to ask. Two things. The first one about the digital trust ecosystem. I share the idea that it must be implemented. The question is now how? Just one example. In France, we have health pass at a national level. And we were said that no external server would have access to the information people have on their phone regarding their health status. But it was proved by some hackers that many, many external servers, including in the United States, had access to such information. So I think that raises the question, what political infrastructure we put in place to ensure that once such tools exist, 
we control how they function because the everyday citizen cannot just even understand how it works. There is such a complexity in this field. And another question I wanted to ask to everybody is, aren't you afraid of the small steps strategy? Because yes, of course, today we do not use uh, the health pass for grocery stores, but we've crossed the line and the philosophy would be the same. Once we consider normal to ask people whether they are vaccinated to travel or not, we could consider normal also to make grocery sorry, store safe and some grocery stores could sell to their clients that they, they do not have the risk to, to, have the, to, to be contaminated with any virus. And so I think once we've crossed the lines, this is very difficult to, to go back in the, in the other direction. So I'd be glad to, to know what the other panelists think of, of this risk. Thank you. All right. Now we've got two questions going on, but they're certainly connected. The question of data and, and how that's shared and not, and, and then how it's used. So Asa, we'll come to you and then Dakota will come back to you on this. On both of them, you're welcome to address. Yeah, I just wanted to agree with Remy on the idea that I don't see a rollback. I, I think that this is a slippery slope and as we get into it, it's likely to become the sorcerer's apprentice and, and you know, sort of blow up on our faces. And also the idea of trust, I think that, you know, we have talked about this a little bit, but providing multiple options, making sure that there's clear ideas around data minimization. So Dakota mentioned that, you know, it does give us a choice to show certain details and not show certain details. I'm not sure how that's going to be possible, but I think that needs some like red flags as to what data is collected, what data is shared, how it's used. All of that is currently unclear to me. And I think that we need also more global agreements on what is the data protection rules and uh, frameworks around vaccine passports. And again, like for me, the biggest protection is that this needs to be a finite measure. You know, there needs to be some kind of an agreement where if that December 31st, 2021, or whenever we decide that COVID is no longer a concern, vaccine passports need to go off. They can't become, and I'll again, like an example from India, right? We are enrolling into what is called the COVID app for our vaccine appointments. And now what's also happening simultaneously and not with the consent of everybody involved is that you're also suddenly getting signed up for a health data ID, which the government has decided to roll out simultaneously. So you enroll for the COVID app, somewhere in that system, there's an awkwardly worded consent form that you like, you know, just agree to. And then what you end up with is a new digital identity that you didn't really want. So there are these ways in which passport or vaccine passports. And we're not just thinking about Europe where people are, you know, protected by GDPR. We are looking at, you know, a global population which doesn't have the requisite data protection frameworks behind it. And I think that's also something that we need to consider that we cannot pull the solutions and frameworks that were built in Europe to other parts of the world. So yeah, no answers, just a lot of questions and a huge amount of concern for what's happening. Thank you, Asa. That's actually becoming quite clear. <laughs> Dakota, let's come to you. I maybe to Remy's point first around how do you ensure that this doesn't become, you know, sort of a slippery slope and how do you put safeguards in place to discourage or to fully limit the ability of the grocery store or whatever? And philosophically, you know, how do you ensure that this doesn't just kind of continue to slide? I mean, as you guys can tell, I'm very much a believer in sort of proactive guardrails of saying, you know, this technology is going to continue to move forward. And absent kind of engaging with the technology, now we're going to wake up and see that it has pervaded, it's going to pervade life in many ways that we didn't anticipate. And so the way I've always thought about this is how do you bring civil society and the technologists and the governments around a common table and say, we're going to collectively design technology and collectively design the guardrails around technology so that from the outset, there is a real sensitivity to, I think, where these things could, could go wrong and, you know, what must be done to, to kind of limit their misuse. That's actually funny. Maybe this is to, to Baba's point earlier, but 
Another thing that I think is sort of critical in how we think about these technologies is there are real risks of misuse associated with any of these technologies, whether that's health passes, whether that's digital ID, whether that's things further afield like AI, right? And we should be really specific about what those risks of misuse are and, you know, and essentially be able to say, how are we going to try and mitigate collectively every one of them? I do believe kind of to Asa's last point around differential policy landscapes and differential protections for privacy in, in, in different countries. I think market-based interventions are going to be really critical. How do we shape the technology that's being brought to market um, and being adopted using market-based tools so that you know, we can be, even across international borders, there is means to say we're going to have sort of technology limit, you know, purpose limitation and whatnot around the technology. I think the other thing that we have to kind of keep in our mind is that there is risk to not using these technologies. And you think about the context of health passes, what is the alternative, right? If we don't have health passes of some form, is the alternative one of we continue to have international borders closed? The implications of that for trade for the international, for the economy, really, really significant. The travel and tourism sector represents, I think, 10% of global GDP, and they're down 80 or 90% in the last year. There are real jobs on the line. There are real implications of that. And so with that, you know, I think we just need to be really cognizant of sort of how do we balance those risks of misuse and the risks of misuse, lack of use, and again, be super specific about what guardrails we want to put in place and how we then create market-based tools to do that. I want to raise Francisca's question, which is where the push for digital only vaccination passports is coming from and what the arguments might be for driving it. What I've been hearing from the four of you is that none of you is in favor of only the digital passports, but for the people who are pushing that in in different places, what are the arguments? What are they using to justify that? I'm happy to jump in here. I think that there are two kind of arguments that we hear most commonly. The first is one around forgery, around fraud. You know, at the moment, I have a CDC issued vaccination card. It's a piece of paper that could be printed on a standard laser jet printer. And, you know, someone could easily scrawl in two dates and that would be easy to forge. Nobody would have any way to be able to tell that it was fraudulent. And I think there are concerns around both the public health implications of forged certificates. You know, if people are crossing international borders, for example, claiming to have been vaccinated when they have not been, it's hard for a government to say, I'm providing assurances that I'm trying to keep my citizens safe. The other sort of significant push that I think we've heard, and again, you know, I think that with that, you know, there's a question of saying, how do you know that the person who issued it is an eligible issuer? And this comes back to this question of sort of the trust framework and then, you know, who is participating in that digital trust ecosystem. The other sort of drive, I think that we've heard around digital certificates has been one of, there's a few, but the, the next one I think is we live in a modern age, right? Lots of people are crossing borders. They have their phone in their hand. You know, we should be using a modern tool to solve a modern problem. You know, it's better to offer that sort of optionality. And then I think the last argument that I've heard quite regularly, and this is a surprising one to me, is concerns around privacy when it comes to paper. There's a government that we've been engaged with very closely through the Good Health Pass Collaborative who basically said, we have such concerns around what happens with a paper-based certificate from a privacy perspective that we find ourselves really struggling with the idea of issuing paper-based certificates. We know that we need to from an equity and inclusion perspective, but like if there was any way that we could not, we wouldn't do it. And so I think, you know, that's, that's interesting because it runs counter to so, you know, what so many people assume when they think about a digital certificate and the sort of privacy implications thereof. But I do think it's important to sort of acknowledge that for some, the privacy risks around a paper-based certificate loom large. Thanks for your question, Francisca. So I want to give us just one last question, and it comes from Wolfgang, and I think it's really a potentially nice note to land on, and that would be the best entry points for civil society organizations specifically in how to engage in all these questions and issues that have come up over the design of it, the protection, whether there's trust. What are the steps that can be taken at this point to correct, or as Dakota has used the, the word guardrails, to put those up or to ensure that these sorcerer's apprentice scenarios are not in our future, that this isn't going to get out of control. How can organizations jump into this? Asa. 
So I think that for me, and again, this is because I have a research, we work on a research organization. So for me, I think creating evidence is critical. I think that we need to make sure that there are independent evaluations and impact assessments. So to actually put forth the scale of the issue, you know, it could be that Remy, Baba and I are just being unnecessarily skeptical and there's, you know, there's no reason to worry. But yeah, so I think we need to create a huge amount of evidence. I think advocacy and creating awareness around these issues. So, of course, conversations like this one, but also more and much wider and, you know, to make sure that we aren't just speaking to our echo chambers, but also beyond that, I think it's critical. That as well is a way for me to think about civil society organizations. And then again, like I think holding the government and the implementers of this system accountable and every civil society organization in different jurisdictions have ways of doing this. But I think that's again, for me, a role so that, you know, you have to work both sort of bottom up, make the community more aware, but also top down and hold governments accountable to, you know, is it going to be finite? What are data minimization standards, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that for me, is the way forward. Baba, what about you? What what could be the way forward for civil society organizations? Well, for me, first, a very quick response to Tell's question. We are already there. It's just that it's not yet generalized about the use of the vaccine certificate to power people. In Israel right now, the Green Pass, as they call it, without it, you can't get to a gym, you can't get to bars and things like that. So it's just that it is not yet generalized, but we are there. The social apprentice has already entered the room and everything is going awry already. Well, on, on, the, on the question you raised, perhaps, I think the point of departure should be getting to the fundamentals, getting to the fundamentals in two sense. First, the idea of, is it, are we talking of digital certificate or paper certificate, it's not even in the, it's not an argument. The idea of paper as alternative, in my view, is, is a bit of a straw man. The thing is, as part of public health measures, there'll be the need, you know, for tracing, identifying, and all that. But the issues of privacy and the issues of the powers of the public, talking of the apps, we, we saw how such surveillance resulted in severe violation of, of people's right to privacy in, in Korea and at the earlier point of the pandemic. But talking of with public, that's why I'm also I'm almost bothered. Dakota's suggestion that probably market rules or market forces best to handle this. On the contrary, I think that it would make a bad situation worse. The point of departure for us should be such health trust framework based on universal quality public services, including for delivering vaccine for all without having universal access to vaccine at no cost to anyone. And with the involvement of private developers in this smart vaccine certificate, we are deepening not only health inequities, but social inequities, as well as the digital inequities that these things now reinforce each other. So to answer your question more directly, what should be point of departure of civil society organizations? Civil society organizations have to address this issue by putting it within the perspective of curbing the powers of, of the market. Part of what I'm saying is it's not just COVID-19, what we are seeing, and I reiterate it, we are seeing what could be a lasting system within public health. So if we don't address it at the roots, to borrow from uh, Arundhati Roy, the pandemic is a portal. But the way things are going, we were quite optimistic at the beginning of the pandemic. But right now, you see the corporations feeling comfortable in calling the shots. You see wealthier countries feeling... So all these issues with regards to the, even the vaccine certificate, the issue of making vaccine available to all, which was the position of the world that has ended, but which in practice, in, in verbally people still commit to it, is not so. All these are intertwined. So we should put, civil society should demand things like the chips waiver, ensure everybody has access to vaccine, one. Two, that the vaccine certificates, the data should be strictly with or, or by public authorities and not 
corporations, you know, and three, ensure defend people's civil and political rights with regards to the use of digital vaccination certificates. Thank you. Thank you, Baba. Let me tell us how, from your perspective, civil society organizations can be part of this. Put the matter of awareness first. And that's why the conversation we just had is very important. But we have to acknowledge that this is not that easy to, to have such debates in the, the Western world today, because once you raise some questions about a tool like the Health Pass, uh, you are often you know, accused of being irresponsible. You are said that there is no other option, blah, blah, blah. So I think we have to accept the debates on such a, on such issue and then see the arguments of the two sides and every citizen will be able to, to position himself or herself on this huge challenge. <laughs> huge challenge indeed. For fairness, Dakota, I'd love to come back to you on this question too about civil society organizations and their involvement. And this will be the last word on this. I think there's a few avenues. I, I agree with, you know, with Asta and Remy and others on, the, you know, on this sort of point around advocacy. I mean, I think that being kind of crystalline and pointed about here are the concerns that we have, you know, is, is really, really important. And it's important for individuals to be able to kind of engage in that topic. I mean, I think what we've seen is a number of civil society organizations that have joined the Good Health Pass Collaborative who've said, we want to sit around a table with healthcare organizations, with travel organizations, with technology organizations, as they wrestle with the standards. And I should say, you know, the Good Health Pass Collaborative is very much principles-led. We started by articulating a set of principles and organizations have, have joined presumably because they agree with those principles. I think strength here comes in critical mass. And, you know, what I would encourage is sort of saying, how do we find ways to have a critical mass of voices offering kind of a proactive vision or, you know, of, of what we should be doing. And with that, you know, making it easy for policymakers to adopt um, the proposals and to follow suit. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap it up there. As we suspected, this is a topic that could go on for hours and hours because there are so many layers and so many different ways to look at it. But this has really been illuminating for me and I appreciate the perspectives and I'm sure that I, among others, have some specific takeaways among them that this is potentially far bigger than just a COVID vaccine certificate and proof and that there's so many more things involved. And so indeed, this touches on all of our privacy and data questions, which was also a different debate, but this touches on that in ways that we might not even have imagined yet. So I really appreciate the thoughts from each of you and the time that you've taken to be with us at all different times of the day for each of you. So thank you, Dakota. Thank you, Baba. Thank you, Asa. Thank you, Remy, for inspiring us today, for answering questions, for sharing about this issue as you see it. And thanks to all of you who joined from around the world. We appreciate your questions and just your presence here with us. The next event in this series will be on the 2nd of September on the topic of where to draw ethical red lines in the use of digital by CSOs. So you can already register to join the event on the center's website. On behalf of our wonderful panelists and the International Civil Society Center, I'm Barbara Iverson. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time.